This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged reading of Martin Luther's sermon for the second Sunday in Advent. This is from the John Nicholas Linker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is Romans 15, beginning at verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and through comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Now the God of patience and of comfort grant you to be of the same mind one with another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord ye may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another, even as Christ also received you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ hath been made a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, that he might confirm the promises given unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore will I give praise unto thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah saith, There shall be the root of Jesse, and he that ariseth to rule over the Gentiles, on him shall the Gentiles hope. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus far our text. Observe the aptness of Paul's expression, where he links patience with the comfort of the Scriptures. The Bible does not remove adversity, suffering, and death. No, it simply reveals the Holy Cross. Paul calls it the word of the cross. Therefore, patience is necessary. In the midst of suffering, however, the Bible consoles and strengthens that our patience may not fail but press on unto victory. Under the strong comfort of God's solacing assurance that he is present to direct, the soul bears up with courage and joy beneath its sufferings. This life is simply a mortification of the old Adam, which must die. So patience is essential. Again, since the life to come is not evident to mortal sense, it is necessary for the soul to have something to which it may cleave in patience, something to help it to a partial comprehension of that future life and upon which it can rest. That something is God's word. To it the soul cleaves. Therein it abides, and therein is conveyed from this earthly life to the life to come as in a safe ship. Thus does the hope of the soul continue steadfast. Mark you, the real mission of the scriptures is to comfort the suffering, distressed, and dying. Then he who has had no experience of suffering or death cannot at all understand the comfort of the Bible. Not words, but experience must be the medium of tasting and finding this comfort. Paul mentions patience before comfort of the scriptures to indicate that he who, unwilling to endure suffering, seeks consolation elsewhere, cannot taste the comfort of the word. It is the province of the word alone to comfort. It must therefore meet with patience first. It is jealous and will not permit human relief on a level with itself, which would be to frustrate the purpose of patience and suffering. Now it is no small cross, and calls for no little measure of patience to bear the imperfections and sins of our neighbors. 
In some instances, these things are oppressive enough to evoke on the part of the sufferers desire for death, either for themselves or someone else. To maintain Christian patience under these trials, the afflicted must comfort themselves with those portions of Scripture that show Christ's example. They will be helped to steadfastness and submission in suffering by perceiving that for their sakes Christ has submitted to far greater suffering and has taken upon himself the infinitely heavier burden of their sins in the effort to redeem them. The Apostle enjoins us to be like-minded according to Christ Jesus, that is, from a Christian point of view. For unbelievers too are like-minded, but according to the flesh, the world, and the devil, and not according to Christ. The Jews were of one mind against God and his Christ, as Psalm 2 tells us. Christian unity resists sin and everything opposed to the religion of Christ without, however, committing or designing any sin. It works to the unifying of Christians generally, first with reference to faith and then to outward conduct. When one is weak in faith and defective in conduct, the spirit of Christian unity, though deploring his condition, does not forsake him, much less disparage, reject, or condemn him. His Christian fellow is interested in his welfare and conducts himself toward the weak one as he would himself be treated, and as Christ has indeed treated him in similar and more important matters. Thus is perpetuated that principle wherein the individual follows the way approved of others, conforming to their views and adhering to the same opinions. But the obstinate pursue a course quite the reverse, forsaking, rejecting, and judging him who differs from them, and following their own ways, guided by their own opinions, as do the orders of popery and other sects. Verse 6. That with one accord ye may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the good we can do is to praise God and to thank Him. This is the only true service we can render Him according to His words in Psalm 50. Whoso offereth the sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his way aright will I show the salvation of God. We receive all blessings from him in order that for which we should make the offering of praise. If anything else purporting to be service to God is presented for your consideration, rest assured it is erroneous and delusive. For instance, the distracted world attempts to serve God by setting apart houses, churches, cloisters, vestures, gold-trimmed, silk, and every other kind, silver vessels and images, bells and organs, candles and lamps, the money for which expense should have been appropriated to the poor if the object was to make an offering to God. Further, it keeps up a muttering and wailing in the churches day and night, but true praise and honor of God, a service that cannot be confined to place or person, is quietly ignored the world over. The pretenses of priests and monks about their system of exercises being service to the Lord are false and delusive. Now, while Christ is our common blessing, as before said, we should at the same time ascribe all to the Father. For Christ is the Father's gracious manifestation, whereby our hearts are drawn to Him. So we should confidently love and praise the Father for His lavish blessings, with such exercise, our hearts will learn to comfort themselves in Him and to look to Him for every blessing in life or death, but this through Christ and not through merit in ourselves. Christ was given that by Him we might thus confidently approach the Father. John 14 declares, No one cometh unto the Father but by me. 
Notwithstanding, Christ is truly God, and one might safely repose confidence in him, yet he constantly points to the Father. For he would not have mankind continue to trust in his humanity, as the disciples did before his suffering, instead of lifting its thoughts above his humanity up to his divinity. We must look upon Christ's humanity as enabling him to be a way, an evidence, a work of God, and whereby we come to God. We are to place our whole confidence in God and in him alone, being very careful not to devote any portion of it to the mother of God or any saint, and so set up an idol in our hearts. Verse 7. Wherefore receive you one another, even as Christ also receive you to the glory of God. What is the significance here of the word wherefore? There are two reasons, the apostle would say to the Romans, why you should receive one another. The first is because of Christ's example. As you have heard, the scripture presents Christ to us as one upon whom fell the infamy of our sins. For us, he was ignominious in God's sight, who did not despise, reject, or revile us, but received us that he might redeem us from our sins. We are then under particular obligation to receive one another. The other reason the apostle presents for our receiving one another is that thus we contribute to the praise and honor of God. This we learn from Christ. He everywhere testifies that all he does is in obedience to his Father's will, and that he came for no other purpose than to do the will of God. It is certain, then, he bore the ignominy of our sins simply because it was his Father's will. Mark the exceeding mercy of the Father's controlling will in placing upon his beloved and only Son our sins, and permitting him to bear the shame of them, merely that we might escape condemnation, therefore. Now, a true recognition of this, God's gracious will, must evoke sincere love and praise to him and gratitude for his mercy. For once the individual glimpses the Father's merciful will, he has a conscience so happy and serene he cannot restrain himself, but must honor and praise God for his priceless blessings. Note, Paul says, Christ has in himself upheld the honor of God by receiving us and bearing, yes, exterminating our sins. So should we likewise take upon ourselves the burdens, the sins and imperfections of our neighbors, and bear with and help to reform them. When such Christian conduct is manifest before sinners and the spiritually weak, their hearts are attracted to God and forced to exclaim, Truly he must be a great and gracious God, a righteous Father, whose people these are. For he desires them not to judge, condemn, nor reject us poor, sinful, and imperfect ones, but rather to receive us, to give us aid, and to treat us as if our sins and imperfections were their own. Should we not love and exalt such a God, should we not praise and honor him and give him the implicit confidence of our hearts in all things? What must be the character of that God who desires his people to be so noble? Verses 8 and 9. Now I say that Christ hath been made a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, that he might confirm the promises given unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The apostle has submitted to the Romans his sentiment that, in obedience to the example of Christ, they should receive one another to the honor of God, and make no distinction between Christ's people, whether saints or sinners, strong or weak, rich or poor, since all are entitled to the same privileges. For all have the same blessings in Christ, who creates unity of heart, spirit, mind, and word, 
and renders common all things, whether spiritual or temporal, and however diverse they may be. Now Paul goes on to establish his position with strong passages of Scripture. Standing between Jews and Gentiles as an arbitrator and mediator, he, by the use of scriptural authority, dissipates all causes of discord. He would say, You Jews cannot reject the Gentiles, even though they do not follow your customs in eating and drinking, for they have the very same Christ you have according to Scripture prophecy. Again, you Gentiles cannot despise the Jews for not conforming to your ways in the matter of eating and drinking, for the Scripture promises to them the same Christ you profess. Now Paul's argument is, since the Scripture gives to all equal privileges in Christ, and Jews and Gentiles are brought together under his authority, and since outside of Christ is not for anyone, but in him everyone has all things, in view of these facts, why contend, why judge one another and stir up factions? Why not much rather receive one another in kindness as Christ received you? No one is favored over another, and no one has less than another. Why then contend and create schisms over this question of meats, drink, clothing, over observance of time and place, over manners and such things? These are not vital in any respect. They are temporal things outside of Christ and contribute nothing to salvation. Let every man exercise the liberty he desires in these matters. If any is still weak in faith and has not freedom of conscience, patiently bear with him till he becomes strong for your lenience will cost you nothing. You will still have Christ unreservedly. True, Jews and Gentiles have Christ in common, yet the promise was not to the Gentiles, it was to the Jews exclusively. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, and again in Romans 9 that the law was given to them. So too Christ came to the Jews alone, as he himself says, I was not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15. It was the peculiar privilege of the Jews to have Christ promised to them and to be able to await his coming. But to the Gentiles was nothing promised and they awaited nothing. At the same time, Jews and Gentiles are on common ground in the fact that Christ being promised of pure grace, he was given to the Gentiles also. After the promise was made to the Jews, the Gentiles had just reason to regard the coming Messiah as given to them also. Verse 9, Therefore I will give praise unto thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. Now the Apostle goes on to quote some scripture passages, revealing the fact that the Gentiles shall praise God for his mercy. This first quotation is found in Psalm 18, and also in Psalm 108. These words are spoken by the prophet for Christ, as in both cases the whole psalm makes plain. Now if this declaration is to be verified, Christ must be present with the Gentiles, not physically, but spiritually. For unless Christ is present spiritually, praise of him is not forthcoming. But the singing of his praise is guarantee of his spiritual presence. So this quotation forces us to conclude that the Gentiles shall believe in Christ and possess him. In other words, enjoy the mercy of God. Yet the verse makes no promise to them. It is merely a revelation concerning their future conduct. We have before mentioned what constitutes true service of God. Here the prophet refers to it as praising and singing unto God's name. And so it is defined throughout the scriptures. Now, praise is simply a confession of blessings received. 
The Hebrew and apostolic word in this verse is, I will confess thee, meaning, I will thank and praise thee and declare all I have received from thee. Verse 10, And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. These words are quoted from Deuteronomy 32, where Moses says, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. The Hebrew, however, admits of the rendering, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with him. It is with this thought of God, it seems to me, the Apostle introduces the quotation. Yet whether we read it thus or otherwise, clearly no one praises the people of God nor rejoices with him, unless he be partaker of God's blessings and own him God. For he who does not possess God and his blessings is an enemy to God's people, cursing and persecuting them, as God says in Genesis 12. I will bless them that bless thee, and him that curseth thee will I curse. Here you see they who bless God's people are partakers of his blessings. So this second quotation teaches conclusively that the Gentiles shall become Christians. Verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. This verse is Psalm 117. It also has reference to the true service of God. Therefore it too teaches that the Gentiles shall be the people of God. For only they serve, that is, praise and honor, God, who are his people. Verse 12. And again Isaiah saith, There shall be the root of Jesse, and he that ariseth shall rule over Gentiles. On him shall the Gentiles hope. We have this declaration in Isaiah 11. In Hebrew it reads, It shall come to pass in that day that the root of Jesse, that standeth for an ensign of the people, unto him shall the nations seek, and his resting place shall be glorious. The meaning, evidently, is that the Gentiles shall possess Christ, and he shall reign over them. Paul makes a slight change in the words following the rendering of the old translators who wrote the Bible in the Greek language. The meaning of the quotation is the same, however. The root of Jesse should not be understood here as stem or tree in the genealogical sense, as the artist would delineate the tree of Jesse, the father of David, with its many branches. And as we understand when we sing of the Blessed Virgin, the stem of Jesse has sprung forth. That would be altogether a forced construction. Christ himself, and none other, is the stem or root. The construction of this passage from Isaiah makes that meaning plain. For it says practically, The Gentiles shall hope for the stem or root of Jesse, which is to rule the nations, and so forth. This prophecy cannot be made to refer to the human Jesse or to our Blessed Virgin. Christ is the root of Jesse. He descended from the lineage of Jesse through David, but in him physical descent ceased. He suffered and was buried in the grave as an ill-favored root, concealed from the world, and out of him grew that beautiful tree, the Christian church, spreading out into all the world. The root of Jesse is properly delineated when portrayal includes the sufferings of Christ and their fruits. Paul's assertion, and he that ariseth to rule over the Gentiles, is equivalent to the Hebrew that standeth for an ensign of the people. It shows Christ's government to be a spiritual one. The gospel raises him as a standard before the whole world, an ensign to which we must be loyal through faith. We do not see him physically. We behold him only through the ensign, the gospel. And it is through the gospel he reigns over men, not in a physical presence. Again, the expression, on him shall the Gentiles hope, does not materially differ from the Hebrew rendering, 
to it shall the Gentiles seek. The meaning is the Gentiles shall look unto the root of Jesse and cleave only to him, placing all confidence and hope in him and finding in him their consolation. They shall seek for and desire not else. Verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you all with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul concludes this passage with a noble prayer, desiring the Romans to be filled with joy and peace. He calls upon the God of hope, referring to the hope God alone gives through Christ and in Christ. The way we possess peace and joy we have before spoken of. The secret is in perceiving the will of God, how he gave Christ to bear our sins, which we are under obligation to believe. The more clearly we perceive his will, the stronger will be our faith, our hope, and love. Hence we must continually preach the gospel, receive it, and meditate upon it, for faith comes through no other medium than the gospel. The apostle says, in effect, May God, who through the gospel effects hope, grant you grace, enabling you to appropriate the gospel and believe. Through believing you first perceive Christ. Thereupon follow perfect peace and assured conscience. These are blessings common to all, and you will have harmony among yourselves. The Christian's peace and joy is something received, not as the gift of the world is received, through a mortal sense, but through faith. He who is the source of your good, and from whom you derive your peace and joy, is not recognized by sight or touch. However in the world you will have disquietude and grief, but learn that Christ is the common blessing of all, and you will enjoy blessed peace. For all being alike rich, no one can begrudge another anything. This is what it means to have peace and joy through faith or in faith. That ye may abound in hope, continues the prayer. In other words, that your hope may ever increase. Now, suffering and persecution contribute to the increase of hope. We are not given increased hope to decrease adversity. No, adversity is increased that hope may not rely on human power, but be established through the power of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit aids us, fortifying our hope and enabling us not to fear nor to flee from the disasters of the world, but to stand firm even unto death and to overcome all evil, so that evil must flee from us and cease its attacks. Remember, it is hope in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in human weakness, that must do all this through the medium of the gospel. As before said, through patience and through comfort of the scriptures we have hope. Where the gospel is not, there is neither hope, comfort, peace, joy, faith, love, Christ, God, nor anything good. Evidence of this fact is before us in the wretched, spiritless, carnal, clerical orders, notwithstanding their much praying and holding of masses. For these things, O thou God of hope, of patience, and of comfort, graciously preserve us. Amen. This has been a presentation of Classical Lutheran Preaching from the Sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Linker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.